if I have if I have people that want to work with us, if I have sales, okay, and no operations, none of that, I'll have a business. If I have all the operations, all the bells and whistles, all the tools, the software, all that kind of stuff, all set up, but no sales, I have no business. Cool, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, you reached out um, right at the funny time when we just started pivoting to live stream podcasts. Um, so we caught up around that. So you came in more prepared than uh, the past guest has been uh, so far in the lives. Uh, is this your first nice. live stream? This is not my first live stream, but uh, I think the first live stream podcast, this would be the first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's interesting that we're getting more into the culture of live streaming, where in, in the West, mm-hmm. at least in Asia, it's it's been going on for quite a bit. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is one of the things I want to talk to you about is like the evolving technology landscape, especially around sales and B two B enablement. Because you've done some fantastic stuff. So let's start off with a quick intro uh, about you yeah, sure. and uh, your company. Yeah, so I run a company called VT Member, stands for Virtual Team Member. Uh, And so we are a company based in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And what we do is we source, we hire, we train, and we also provide the ongoing management of a virtual workforce for North American companies. Um, But we do it for less than half the cost for North American employees. So we do everything from data entry, cold calling, appointment setting, graphic design, video editing, web development, anything virtual you can think of, we do, except we do for eight bucks an hour. and uh, the way that we do that's a little bit different as well is that, you know, we create a career progression plan for all of our virtual assistants. Um, we create a community. We have an online university that trains them up on different skill sets that they would require on work. So it's 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 essentially like a Upworks or like a Fiverr on steroids. That's essentially what we do. Yeah. I mean, this concept of microtasking um, really took off with Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. You know, the, the right. idea of like you can most of the things you can do, you can kind of outsource uh, or you can... Um, reprioritize to someone who's more specialized uh, to do it faster and cheaper for you, uh, especially making advantage of the arbitrage and in, in, in different um, in, in different currencies. So uh, how does this how does this work? Uh, how is this different from like uh, other uh, talent management companies? Yeah, so other talent management companies, so we call it BPO, business process outsourcing company. That's the industry that we're in. Uh, other companies out there, when you hire a team member, you go online, it's a very clunky interview process. You interview them on Skype or on WhatsApp or whatever it is. And uh, and, yeah, and you get a mixed bag. You don't really know what to look for. You don't know. You, there's a whole filtration process. You get to a person, that person starts with you. You're like, all right, I finally got a virtual assistant. So I'm ready to go. Problem with that is that, you know, sometimes in the Philippines or in South Africa, wherever it is, there's typhoon, you can't reach them, technical issues, there's problems that come up, quality of work is low, English level is poor, they can't work on your time zone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we essentially fix all of those issues. But in addition to that, when you hire a team member from us, you don't just get one team member, you actually get three. So you you get number one, the virtual assistant, who's going to be doing your task. Um, But in addition to that, you actually get a virtual trainer that's attached to the hip with that virtual assistant. So essentially, that virtual trainer is actually compensated on every hour that the virtual assistant works. So they're there to ensure that you are happy, right? And so that virtual trainer, right, their role essentially is to monitor the ongoing work of your virtual assistant to ensure the quality. So for instance, if you hire a cold caller from us, right, the minimum standard that we expect all cold callers on our team to do is 100 to 150 cold calls a day minimum. If they miss it by more than three days in a row, they're gone. So who goes in and tracks the number of calls that they do, 
who goes in and sees that you know they're saying the right script, who goes in and essentially monitors the objections and trains them up on different strategies that they can get through the gatekeeper, et cetera, et cetera. That's a virtual trainer. And the last but not least is a client success team where we, I have an entire team that's managing our client success chat. It's a WhatsApp chat. Oh, sorry, it's like a WhatsApp like um, uh, account, and you can essentially reach out to that 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 uh, that that client success team twenty four seven, and they'll be able to reach you, and they'll be able to help you. This seems like a really um, really great infrastructure you set up here. Uh, what does an ideal client yeah. look like for you? Uh, we're shifting. Uh, I mean, I can tell you right now, out of the clients that we have right now, we're a team of 70, 70 almost 75 people large. And uh, out of the clients that we have right now, we have engineering firms, law firms, manufacturing companies, realtors, mortgage brokers, financial advisors, SaaS companies, like you name it, every industry. Now, we are honing in now on, on, on a couple of industries, but the ideal client for me is ultimately somebody who is looking to scale their business and they don't have the funds to hire a local employee or, you know, there are certain, there's so many things on the, the, the must, uh, there's so many things on the list of things that they must do that, the, that the nice to haves and the actual things that are actually going to grow their business that never gets done. Right. And so ultimately it's people who have on the must do list, a bunch of things that they want to outsource to an individual, that person mm-hmm. can take that on. Right. So that would be it. But we are actually carving out a space in the real estate space. So specifically, we're creating online training for all real estate administrative assistants. So um, in that space, we're actually we're actually currently right now actively looking for realtors, realtors who are looking to um, scale and they want an administrative assistant. but They don't want to pay 50 grand locally for an administrative assistant. Right. And they can they can hire us for eight bucks hmm. an hour. That assistant will actually be trained in Canadian real estate. We'll teach them the paperwork. We'll teach them all the ins and outs of Canadian real estate, social media, cold calling, calling, you know, for sale by owners, expired, calling just souls. Like we'll train them up on everything to do with Canadian real estate to help you. Um, but because there's so many realtors here in Canada, that's the reason why we're diving into the space. But yeah, we are niching down, but as of right now, it's still an open, open, open kind of industry. Man, I love that. I, I love the fact you niche down to um, like a particular cl- a type of clientele because I've uh, you know I, I know the intricacies of setting something like this up. And if you try to go like uh, industry agnostic, you can get swallowed up in like all the different types of tasks that's coming towards you. That's right. And customer service is a nightmare, right? Yeah. And um, and the and the other thing, it's not as enticing. I can't I can't command a higher fee right now. It's eight dollars an hour, but um, you know, we're 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 talking to our business coach right now to kind of shift that. But I mean, to give you an idea, I mean, if you're for example, right now with EXP Realty, we're creating something specifically for EXP Realtors, like all the programs, CRM, the the the, the documents, the software that they use. We're actually creating all that in a university right now. So imagine if you're an EXP Realtor. Right. And you want to hire an assistant. Yeah, sure. You can hire locally. You hire a $50,000 assistant who actually doesn't know the program yet, have to learn the program, have to learn the paperwork, the whole nine yards, or hire one of our assistants where they already know everything walking into day one and they have an entire university and an online mastermind group <laughs> with all, a lot of other EXP administrative assistants as well to help them as they get up to speed to help you. Right. So yeah. it, it makes a huge difference when it comes to the value prop. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with a lot of uh, realtors in our community. Real, real estate and realtors is like a huge thing, and and uh, you know, my parents are in it, so like I can definitely see the struggles of this because there's a lot of like um, like solo real estate agents or uh, independents or like very small firms that really struggle to get past the admin hurdle. Uh, it's not That's that right. they're good at sales or they can't get things to the pipeline. They get really jammed up with uh, with organizational flow. 
And oftentimes, right. this is not like the most high tech of industries, right? Like, um, no one's going around training people on how to best use technologies, automations, things like that. So the idea that uh, you can come in and provide some kind of intelligence, some kind of uh, uh, some kind of a framework, a modernization project, if you will, to do this is really interesting. And I was actually right. thinking about this problem, right? Like, how do you modernize all these real estate agents? And I think you found a really cool kind of angle. It's like, yeah, you keep doing everything you do in house and running a small agent, but let us pick up everything back out, back of, uh, back of house for you. So that's right. That's right. Can you can you talk a little bit more about what like a, a real estate virtual assistant would do and what job functions replaces? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, if you look at realtors, like realtors are salespeople. I'm a salesperson, right? By mm. by, by trade, like I dropped out of school when I was 19 years old, and I. I went and started doing door-to-door sales for one of the largest telecom companies here in Canada for Telus. I went door, yeah, I went door-to-door and I said, "Hey, do you want home phone TV internet? Do you want home phone TV internet?" Like literally, that was how it kind of came up. Before that, when I was in school, the reason why I dropped out was because I was a meat salesman going door-to-door selling steaks and lean, and lean ground beef from a cooler. That, that and and I made a lot of money in school. That's the reason why I was like, "Oh, like, I didn't really need school to make money." So. I'm a salesman by trade and the type of individual that would be a great salesperson, AKA realtors, they're usually not the most organized person, paperwork person. You know, they're not, they're not usually administratively focused, right? Um, which is, which is kind of where the gap of, of where we come in. So an average real estate administrative assistant, they have a couple of things. Number one, obviously social media, right? They have graphic design skills. They have video editing skills. They can schedule your post captions and, and they can interact with your, with your, with your audience, right? One of the, one of the top realtors here in Vancouver's name is John Tai. Um, you know, he even, he even has his uh, assistant actually going like, like, for example, it was his birthday a couple of months, a couple of months ago. And he went on there and he had an assistant go and reply. Thank you to everyone. Cause he got like, I don't know, like over a thousand messages on his, on his Instagram. Right? Like instead of him going there saying, oh, thank you, or thank you, or thank you, or thank you. Or the alternative is just leaving them so that, you know, like like they, they never get responded to. He has his assistant do that. So that's one thing, social media management. The other thing is um, cold calling, right? So we call, right, um, for sale by owners. We call expired. We, we call for sales. We literally call call up people on your list and we say, hey, look, your neighbor just sold for 200000 over asking. I'm just curious. Are you curious to know what your current home value is? And by the way, if we can get you a good price, would you consider selling? In this market where the inventory is the lowest it's ever been here in Canada for a very long time, right? Um, extra leads, like lead generation, that's key. That's crucial, right? The other thing that they do, paperwork, easy, right? From pre-listing all the way to listing to contract, right? They do the paperwork A to Z, right? Manage your CRM, okay? Do research for you. Coordinate movers, painters, coordinate uh, organizers, right? Um, email management, Calendar management, right? As a salesperson, you have a ton of stuff that just pops in your mind and you forget about them. You can essentially just take all of that, send a WhatsApp message to your team, and then they will categorize that on whatever platform they use for you, whether it's a Trello board, you know, using a PMP software or uh, using a to-do list, whatever it is, or they can just plot it directly into your calendar. It's someone who take to, takes your chaos and then organizes it in, 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 a, in a systematic way to help you streamline so you can focus your time more on revenue generate, generating activities. Yeah, and yeah. as you mentioned, these kind of tools, first of all, I love the system and I love the, the value add you do for the industry. But um, talking about uh, you know, uh, realtors themselves, how have how their reactions been to the, new, the tools you utilize? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's new to them, using Trello boards and those kind of systems, or are they already doing this? They're not. That's mm-hmm. the thing, because they never had to manage anyone before. Mm-hmm. So like they don't have to manage themselves. And the thing is, when you manage yourself, you don't really need a whole lot, 
But like, for example, like we developed systems and tools along the way in the beginning, we did it. Our business model was literally, oh, hey, we can hire a team member for you for very cheap $8 an hour. We'll give them to you. You manage them. So like you're going to give them the script, you're going to give them the lists to call, you're going to get them set up with the tools, you're going to get them set up with the training, you're going to, like you're going to handle all of it. And then as time progressed, we just realized that when we're working with solopreneurs, especially in the real estate industry, they don't know how to manage these people. So when we start implementing these tools, they're like, oh my gosh, this is so simple. Like for example, one of the mortgage brokers broker, brokers that we work with over here, Clear Trust Mortgages here in, here in Vancouver, um, uh, like we, we go in and as we customize the travel board, it um, it became like a CRM system, not like a like a visual CRM system for them to see what deals were in what pipeline and that like you can drag and drop like like when they see it, it's like, oh my gosh, like this is so mm. much, so much simpler. Like when we implement automation tool, because when I sit down with clients, I don't just hop straight into, you know, oh, you need a person, yeah, let's get you a person. No. I sit down and I and I consult and I actually have a conversation first because the steps are this eliminate, automate, then outsource. Eliminate, automate, then outsource. If there's things that you can eliminate your business, eliminate in your business that provides no value, right, to your end client, to your business, to your bottom line, you eliminate it. Mm -hmm. Redundant. And then you automate using tools, Zapier, integrations, automation, whatever it is. Then for the things that you can't eliminate and you can't automate, then you outsource. Why? Because elimination and automation is cheaper. And the whole reason why they're having a conversation with me is cost savings. So I'm not, I'm not going to rush them into having a, having a team member on their team right away to you know, just go and do the, do, do, do it because, you know, I want to make revenue, right? Yeah. No, like eliminate, automate, then you outsource. Cause it's going to make your team member when they outsource, right. It's going to make them so much more effective and they're not doing redundant tasks. It could be automated. Yeah. So I love that factor, but it seems like you're doing a bit of consulting here as well. It's like you're coming in and learning a bit about the business, their infrastructure, and then building uh, their process around uh, what, what traditionally worked for you uh, from your side of the, the coin, right? How does that look like uh, for like um, generally a laggard industry like real estate? Um, how's that integration been? How's it been working with realtors? Uh, are they, is it like a process to learn about their business? Are, are you seeing like a lot of holes and that they're not understanding? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I do see a lot of holes. Most realtors don't have a, don't have an SOP, and usually when I say SOP, they're like, "What, is that? what the heck is that?" And it's a standard operating procedure. Most realtors don't have that. You know, we have flowcharts built out for every function in our business because, like, think about it. Like, we're basically an HR company. Like, we hire, we have to manage. Like, people are absent, time tracking, like, you know, all that, making sure people are productive. Like, our team is growing, and we grew from like zero to almost seventy five people. We've only been in operation, like, business operation, for like seven eight months. Like we've only been in operations eight months ago. I was running a door to door sales team in, uh, in, in, in Toronto going door to door selling home security like <laughs> eight months ago. So, so we, when we grew this company, it's like, I think, I think the biggest gap when it comes to, when it comes to, um, realtors is organizing is like, I think depending on the brokerage, the brokerage provides them with the tools, right? But for them, because they're trying to run at such a fast pace, they never end up integrating their life with those tools. And maybe because the tools are archaic, maybe because the tools like they don't work, whatever CRM that they're using, like, like, and it's, this is a common thing. It's not just with realtors. It's like when you're, when you're a sales, when I was a salesperson, I hated taking like my notebook and like stuff from like Excel spreadsheet and putting them in a CRM, like a Salesforce. I hated it. Mm -hmm. Right. Same thing with realtors. Right. And so essentially you don't have to do that. Like for me, Right. When I, when I, when I'm speaking with clients um, or right after I have a conversation with clients, all I have to do, I just go to my assistant, Jake, and I'm like, Hey Jake, this, that, and the other thing. And then he plots everything for me. He puts into the CRM, he integrates, he onboards, he, 
contacts my recruitment team and activates everything. He does it. All I have to focus on is putting my putting my head down and just and just and just growing, right? And being creative. So you know, to pinpoint exactly what it is, like there, there are just a lot of things like paperwork, like managing CRMs, um, you know, social media as well, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of realtors, like they have no idea like what works and what doesn't work on social media. Like they're just like, all right, I'm going to post. Oh, well, I'm not getting a whole lot of likes or, oh no, like, you know, um, I don't know what hashtags to use or I don't know what content or, or their content's all over the place. So we actually have a team that helps them do that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take a little bit of time to like talk about, um, your history coming back into this, you know, especially the door-to-door stuff. Because I always found that people who have done door-to-door sales are a completely different level of tenacity. Uh, and that translates over into entrepreneurship, translate into like f- uh, further into their careers later on. Um, and, and Grant Cardone, who I follow a lot, uh, talks a lot about this, right? Like people who have that kind of, who have earned their stripes uh, doing the hardest of the hard uh, when it comes to sales, you know, getting into people's homes, into That's an intimate right. environment. Uh, facing people eye to eye and and, and have to right. sling things um, belly to belly <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah like talking about coming from that kind of environment and moving here uh into into a space where you're running virtual right and becoming yeah. the enablement side of sales uh taking on background support uh can you talk a little bit about like the environment you come from like what kind of support structure did you have or wish you had did that lead yeah. to what you're building now yeah, I mean, let's. I mean, let's go back. I went, I went to University of Western Ontario. I did two years of media because I thought I wanted to be a Hollywood director. Which <laughs> I actually wanted to become a Hollywood director, not because I wanted to become a Hollywood director, but because I didn't want to be a teacher. Like I realized when I was like, I don't know, like grade 11, 12, I was like applying it for university, but and then I got accepted into all the you know teachers' college, blah blah blah. Like I got accepted into like all the concurrent education programs. However, I was like, man, if I become a teacher, I'm gonna make 50 grand for the rest of my life for like the next 40 years. That's 2 million bucks before tax. After mm-hmm. tax, I don't know, 1.8, 1.6. That means I can buy half a house in Vancouver and then that's it, end of my life. So like, I was like, okay, I can't do that. So I wanted to become a Hollywood director. So when I was in school, actually my very first sales job was, commission-based sales job was a meat salesman. So I was selling three to $5,000 meat packages, going door to door, selling people an entire year's worth of meat in one go. If they didn't have a freezer, I'd sell them a freezer as well. That was a sale. So it was very hard. It was farm to table. I remember on my fourth day on the job, I made almost two grand in cash. It was more money than I had in my bank account. I walked home, $2,000 in my, in, my, in my hands. And I was like, what the heck? I was like, I just made more in one day than I made all last month working part-time at Urban Outfitters selling clothes. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was like, hmm, okay. So that was on a Saturday. On a Monday, I was sitting in class and I turned to my friend, Simon. I remember this so vividly, Simon Art, shout out. Turned to him and I was like, Simon, how much do you think this prof makes? He was like, I don't know, like 60, 80 grand. I'm like, no way. I'm like, profs make like two, 300 grand. Easy, right? Nope. I looked it up. Professors, 80 grand. The person, the, like the professor that was teaching us, 80 grand. And I was like, so you're telling me I could literally go out and just made what I, I did what I did on Saturday. I do it for like a full, like two months in a row and then take the rest of the year off and I'll make more than what, what this professor would make. And I was like, why am I here? I was like, I thought, I thought the whole reason why you go to school is so that you can learn a skill, trade that skill and you can make more money in the, in, in the job field. But then I was like, well, here I am. 
I'm sitting in class, but then on the weekends, I can go make more money than my dad doing this part-time. So I'm like, why am I here? So that was kind of how I got launched into the sales career. Then I was, so when I was 19 years old, like I said, I dropped out of school, flew across the country, started a door-to-door sales job with a company called Ledcore, which is a very large construction company here in Canada. Um, they built Telesis Fiber Optic Lines, which is one of the larger telecom companies here in Canada. And we ran the sales team. So I joined that company when there was 25 people. We scaled up to 250, almost 300 people. And, uh, and I took part in training recruitment and we built that built that team and so they promoted 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 and then um and then and then basically uh things didn't work out with that company i left i started a bunch of different types of companies failed at a bunch of different types of companies lost a lot of money doing a bunch of random crap like i like i could list it off like literally mining cryptocurrency trading cryptocurrency amazon fba airbnb a digital marketing firm um, what else? What else do I do? I sold masks during the pandemic. I literally called up Chinese factories in China and I was like, Hey, look, I got a bunch of contracts over here in America. Would you like to, you know, could you sign a supply agreement? I didn't. And then I called, called, um, hospitals down in the States to say, Hey, look, I got a supply agreement with a bunch of factories in China. Would you like to masks? So I brokered that that was during the pandemic. So I, I, I exported cars to China, right? Um, these are all different types of businesses that, that I tried. Some work, some didn't work, some work, some didn't work. Um, and then, and then finally, we we landed on this one, right? So, like, I think, like, just you know, going back to your question, you know, the the, the journey, the kind of support system that I, that that I had, it was more so from a personal development level. You say you mentioned Grant Cardone, right? At Lightcore, we hired Grant Cardone for two years in a row, right? Like one of the guys that run Grant Cardone Canada, Corey Alif, um, him and I, we used to work together at Lightcore together. Right. And so I was exposed to a lot of personal development. I read every single day, audible every single day. At one point, you know, uh, I was waking up at three 30 in the morning every single day. And I was listening to almost listening and reading to almost like six hours of content every day, just on personal development, leadership, sales, negotiation, and you know, the whole nine yards. And so I think from like a support level, I think that's, that's what I would say. I wouldn't change anything to be honest. Um, but I think, I think, in this business, if I'm looking back at just last eight months, if I hired early and I hired quicker, I could have grown quicker. And, and in hindsight, it's always like that. But in the moment, you never want to part with your money because it's so hard to part with your money. But in hindsight, it's always like that. You're always like, oh, I should have somebody else do this. I could have grown faster. Right? So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you have such a wealth of experiences to draw from. Um, can you can we take a little bit moment to talk about that failure rate? Or like trying different things and not working out and moving on, yeah. moving on, moving on, right? How did that sure. how did that process feel like? Was it more like you're in the search for for the business and it didn't matter? Or you know, was it like each time like, damn, this one hurt? Uh okay. So it's like this. Um I was 22 year old at at a corporate executive, a 22 year old, okay, drove a nice car, lived in a nice apartment, um, and uh, I was making close to $150,000 a year as a 22 year old. And all of my friends put their money into real estate. I put my money into building businesses. But building businesses is risky. I'll give you an example of a failure and then I'll maybe walk you through the thought process um, that I had and the feeling that I had as I went through this failure. So Airbnb, all right? So I went on Udemy which is the online online you know course uh, program. So I, I, I watched a course on how to build an Airbnb business um, without having to own real estate. This was before all the guys started doing it. This is like pre, 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 okay? And so I was like, and by the way, by this time, at this time, I didn't know that Airbnb was illegal in Vancouver. I didn't ask anybody. 
Airbnb is legal in Vancouver. Well, it was illegal in Vancouver. Now you need a license, but before it was illegal. So there's actually in Airbnb, there's actually three stages. The owner has to allow you to rent Airbnb. The, the building has to allow you to rent Airbnb. The city has to allow you to rent Airbnb. I had none of those. So I went online, I watched this course, I got all excited. I had like 10 grand. I went, bought a bunch of furniture, I paid down payment on the on, on, on uh, or sorry, I I, I leased a place, right? I rented a place. I got it all furnitured, like furniture up. You know, I I spent you know a couple days until like 3 a.m. putting together this IKEA furniture, all ready to go. I take the pictures, all that. I post on my Airbnb. Okay. Um, three days later, the guy who was running the property, okay, found my Airbnb. He was he scrapes Airbnb data, shuts me down, and then now. I, I'm, I'm out. There's like literally no other platform for me to make money from that. So now I end up paying rent on two places and just burning a hole in my pocket for like a couple of months. Okay. Um, that happened twice. Cause I didn't, because I, I was just like an idiot. I didn't ask anybody. And in that moment, like, you know, all, all together, you know, that whole shenanigan probably lost me like 20 grand, which is whatever. But in the moment I was like, as I'm, if I'm only making $150,000 a year before tax, like 20 grand, yeah, to lose 20 grand on just rent on a, on a bit, like that, that kind of hurts, right? And so like in that moment, I think, I think the, the, the biggest thing that um, is like a moment of comfort for me is this, is that if you really, 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 really think about it, okay? If you made $300,000 a year, okay? If you made $300,000 a year, um. And this is like, and no, and like literally, probably nobody on the block here makes $300,000 a year. Okay. But if you make $300,000 a year, okay, you go and if you work for 40 years, right, and you saved every dime before tax, that's $12 million. If you really think about it. And if you make $12 million as an employee, you're going to be left with like, I don't know, eight, maybe here in Canada. So, you make $300,000, you trade that your entire life as a corporate executive and you were left with eight, you know, you buy a house for $2 million. You have a kid that's another million, two million, two kids, right? You buy a car, switch it once every five years. That's another couple hundred thousand dollars, right? Very quickly, you take a couple vacations, clothing, food, eating out, blah, blah, blah. Very quickly, it dwindles down. And so I'm like, the people who actually have the level of freedom that I actually want, that I actually want, those are the people that actually put their head down and built businesses, took risks, and like actually like built things. And in order to build things, in order to grow, you have to fail. And so you're either going to pay your tuition, you're either going to pay your tuition at the end of your life, um, not having enough, or you're going to pay your tuition now, trying and failing and just like, just going like, balls to the wall and just like figuring it out and like learning all the, all, all, all the, all the problems, all the, you know, all the mistakes now. Right. And so like that, that was like my moment of like comfort and that was how I kind of got through the failures. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of failures, a lot of failures, man. Sorry. We have my dog joining us He's feeling That's all good. my sister's dog. Actually I'm babysitting today. <laughs> she would not, she would not stay by herself, but yeah. Um, yeah. I love, I love how, um, you point out that fact, right? Like of like taking on these risks and then failure coming from something you, of, from an unknown unknown. Um, these are one of the things that terrify me as like as serial entrepreneur as well. It's like the ones that haunt you, the things that come out of left field, like you don't even see coming. And it makes you start thinking like what else is going to come out of, out of nowhere? Um, so a lot of repeat builders, um, you know, people who build business, multiple business, one of the things they start watching out for is things they don't, they don't even know they don't know. So, that's right. Uh, 
so how do we get past that? Like, I think I, I found the best way to find leaders or find teachers, find mentors, some kind of people who already have done things who can help look at things objectively for you or an advisory board, something along those lines, right? Tapping into the resources that have other experiences, right? How do you find it? Um, do you read a lot? Do you, are you constantly looking for new material? How do you, how do you learn? Yeah, always, always carve out a budget, carve out a budget in your business for like a business coach. Hmm. honestly like carve out carve it out like because the thing is like you'll be surprised like some of the some of the top ceos in the world like they have no no, no idea what the heck they're doing right like like some of the largest companies like they have they really have no idea it's like it's like this it's like um i'll, I'll, I'll draw it using a metaphor you ever like watch a sports game and you're like watching like lebron play or you're watching like somebody play on the uh, on the court and you're like bro bro like that guy's open like just pass swing the ball to that guy he has an open three and then boom you'd be tied up Mm. Right. You're like, bro, pass the ball. Right. You can see something that LeBron can't sitting on the sidelines. Does that mean you're a better player? No. It just means you have a different what perspective. That's it. That's the reason why, like, and for me, it's like, it's, it's always be open to it. You're right. People go through the stages of learning, right? Unconscious and incompetent. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And then you learn the things that you don't know, which, yeah, it hurts because you're like, oh, man, it hurts my ego. Oh, man, like I, I never knew this. Oh, shoot. Like I have to like humble myself to be like, all right, I'm in a student learning mode, consciously incompetent. Then you go to consciously competent. Then you go to unconsciously competent where it's like clockwork. Then most people don't teach this. You go to reflectively competence because just because you're really good at what you do doesn't mean you can teach it. Reflectively competence means that you can teach it. You know the stages, the road, the, the roadblocks, the landmines that goes from stage to stage to stage so you can guide somebody else through that process. Most people don't know there's an actual fifth stage of learning where you're reflectively competence, competent, right? So the thing is, I think, I think, um, yeah, going back to it, like, I, I, I just think that, like, in the moment, you have to seek. It's like, if you don't, if you're afraid of the things that you don't know, like you, there's things that you, you don't know, you don't even know what you don't know. Well, the only way to learn about the things that you don't know is to go and seek. And you seek through podcasts like these, you seek through audiobooks, you seek, seek through mentors, you seek through a business coach, right? You seek through, um, uh, you know, people around you, right? So that, that, that would be my, my, my answer and my answer to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things I've been like working through is this idea of like, a success bias where you can get biased by your own success into thinking that you've you've found something that works whereas you've kind of stumbled upon it and the idea here is that you know just like just like in science um you know in business you, the business your business model you're deploying you're actually trying to figure out what doesn't work right and by process of elimination um right you, you're finding things that do work to solve the problems you intend to solve and sometimes if you stumble upon one way of doing it, doesn't mean that you found the best way of doing it. So, but iterative failure, but finding all the, all the ways it doesn't work, trying new things, trying different iterations, building around those, eventually lands you in a spot that's much more lucrative or much more um, creative uh, in expanding. And yeah. uh, I think about this as like mechanized failure. Right, like how do you work? How do you how do you yeah. do it? How do you fail at a, at a consistent rate in a micro level in ways you can control by running consistent tests to grow? Right, that's right. And and, and for example of this, um, I think it was Henry Ford who did this. Right, like at the height of the Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford built like a separate shed behind the main fa factory where he spent most of the time tinkering on like on experimental cars. 
that's where most of his time went in because he himself wanted to be a tinkerer. He wanted to be working on the next end. Whereas the mm. mechanized system of the business running, he wants to be working on new novel things and trying, trying different things out and seeing what doesn't mm. work for the next iteration of what his company mm. could be. Right. Mm-hmm. So this builder mindset is very different. Um, there's this idea that builders build a company to a certain point and then, uh, and then new people come in uh, to, to manage them. Right? And we see this influence curve uh, in, in business all the time, usually after IPOs. Right? When right. it comes to you know, being a builder versus an operator, right? building companies versus operating them, where do you stand? Right. Where do you prefer to be? <sighs> oh, you caught me like literally in that moment, like in our business where I was, I was a builder the last eight months and the last month and a half, I like literally transitioned into being an operator. And for me personally, like it was draining, like, um, you have to balance both. Right. Um, but as the CEO or as the, as the founder, as like the leader, like a leader needs to know where they're going before people start following them. Right. Like you're leading someone like the verb to lead is to lead someone to somewhere. But if you don't know where you're going, it's like can't lead a team to that. And so I struggle with that this last couple of months because we're, I, we've been on hyper growth mode, building, 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 building. And I find that, you know, operate being an operator is necessary, but the thing that's going to take you it's going to give you exponential growth in your business is when you're building, when you're exercising your creative power. I think for me right now in our business, I'm operating. I'm operating. And so that's the reason why this last week, this last two weeks, like you kind of caught me right in the middle of it. Um, I am building more systems, systemizing more and honing in on, on um, the, the, the right personnel that I can hire to take on this thing, to this thing, to this thing, to this thing, you know, systemizing our customer service, like, like all kinds of stuff, like niching down to like real estate market, right? Like these are things that I'm building right now into our business so that I can go back to folks on building. Right. Cause I have a lot of ideas on like where, where our business is going to go. Right. Like we want to launch an NFT this year. I, I built that university, right. That university, I want to create that as a separate revenue stream. So like to sink marketing dollars into that. Um, and there's, there's, there's a lot of different things that I want to do here, here, here of ET member, but you know, my days are, are spent like doing customer service. My days are spent like consulting with clients, existing clients. My days are spent, you know, doing all of these things that are more so operating in the business that I'm not able to grow at the rate that I want to grow. Right. Cause if you just look at all of our graphs, like, yeah, like literally like last year, like we had our first paying client end of June last year, we scaled from that to like 65 grand a month by the end of the year. Like our graph was like this. And then now it's like tapering off the last two months because like you can see it and like, you can see when I, when, when, it, when just me even evaluating myself now, I'm thinking out loud. Um, just when I was in the building phase, you saw a massive growth. We saw a massive growth in the, in the company. When I was in the operating phase, we saw a taper off, right? And so that operation needs to be replaced by someone who you trust so you can focus more on the building because that's how you're going to break that barrier and get to the next phase. Yeah. I love that. Um, I love that you, uh, you build that. So in terms of like tapering off, right? Build versus tapering off. The, the tapering off period, is it, do you feel like, is it, be, is it because you weren't accelerating the sales process that you weren't bringing in new clients? Or you thought this is the plateau, like you want to stop stop growth that and maintain. Um, what what I meant by is the, was the growth curve disrupted by you putting a stop a cap to it and be like this is good. I want I want to focus the growth, here. 
the growth curve is is my time and my energy mm. that that is what bottlenecked like yeah. when it ta- when it started tapering off it was because half of my time in a week is now spent on maintaining my current clients yeah. helping them optimize their campaign customer service so it tapered off and so i couldn't apply that time to revenue generating activities so whether i outsource the revenue generating activities to a person who can who can't not outsource, but I hire a person to take care of that revenue generator so it can continue growing, mm-hmm. right? Or I hire more individuals to support my operations so I can continue focus on revenue generating activities, right? And for me, like my strength zone is the revenue generating activities doing sales and like bringing in new clients. Like that's my strength. So for me, that's kind of where I see myself fit in my organization, mm-hmm. right? Which is the reason why from an operations level, I have to systemize more and bring in more individuals to help me with the operations in order for us to continue growing. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a framework in like SaaS businesses, right? Where uh, the growth curves are tapered by like a factor of two. Um, so uh, a 10,000 MMR business is different from a 100,000 MMR business, which is different from a $1 million business, $10 million business, right? And the idea is that these these are plateaus that need you need to tra- uh, you need to, you need to get you need to get past as a founder, right? So what you build for a 10,000 MMR is different from what you build for a 100,000 MMR, for example. And some people get caught in the trap of building for the whole curve, you know, uh, and a lot of builders, especially technical minded ones, they're building the full gambit, right? Like, what does my business look like at $10 million right. MMR and have all those kind of feature sets out? Whereas right. sales minor folk, uh, sales minor founders are more focused on, okay, how can I get the sales in? How can I justify my business? How can I test my business model out in the market? But sometimes get overly aggressive in growing it that they don't allow time for operations or the technical side to catch up. That's right. What, how do you manage? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, how do you manage those kind of curves between growing and, and operating um, the, the, the business that you get, that you win? Yeah. And th- that's the thing. Cause like in the beginning, like, um, I mean, I'll tell you my thought process, like my internal thoughts. Okay. When I first started the company, I was like, look, if I have if I have people that want to work with us, if I have sales, okay, and no operations, none of that, I'll have a business. If I have all the operations, all the bells and whistles, all the tools, the software, all that kind of stuff, all set up, but no sales, I have no business. So in the beginning, all I focused on was customer acquisition. Everything else, whatever, things that were broken, whatever, I'll fix it. Build the plane as we fly, kind of thing. That was my thought process going through. But now that we've gone through a cycle, right? We started losing some clients when some of those things are broken. I was like, okay, now we got to go back and we got to, we have to fix it now. So I think the balancing act happened for me more so because of the pain. Cause I was like, man, if I retain all those clients, we'd be double where we are. And mind you, like the ones that dropped off, these are cold calling clients. Now, reason why? Is because, I mean, if you really think about cold calling, it is a very sticky service. It's like we provide cold calling services to our clients. How many variables are there in cold calling? A lot. It variables varies by the day. Thursdays are the best days for sales. Mondays are horrible, right? Like these are variables. And so like when, we, when we're doing cold calling, that's the reason why. Like, we're, like we built a universe to streamline things. But like for me, it's like, okay, now how do I... How do I hone in on an industry where the customer life cycle is a lot longer? Okay. The customer service can be automated and everything can be streamlined. 
So yeah, so that's, 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 that's kind of, that's kind of, so I, I started balancing because of the pain. I, I like that. Yeah, it's like almost, it's almost like a natural process. Yeah. Not overthinking sure. it. Yeah. Cool. For sure. Yeah. Man, I, I love this so much. Cause like, I feel like, uh, you know, we've had um, a lot of like technical builders who come on, who talk about building in a very different way. Uh, and, you know, sales mind people who find in a different way, but you're coming at it from like a brilliant ops kind of perspective. Uh, which is more, much more natural to how you want to function uh, as an entrepreneur, right? So can we, let's take a moment here to talk about the lifestyle of entrepreneurship and what that appeals to you. Because it feels like the challenges and, uh, and, and the potential for what, all the different things you can do and kind of assemble is what really uh, motivates you. So what does that mean, entrepreneurship, to you? And uh, how do you internalize it? Freedom. Man, like, like the best thing about entrepreneurship is like, is freedom. And it's like, you know, being able to take a nap at one thirty in the day, you know, if you're really tired, um, like our business, our business is not affected. If I run, if I'm running this business from Hawaii right now, our business is not affected. Our growth is not even affected. Like there's no stunt for our growth. I meet with none of my clients in person. <laughs> none of my employees I've, I've met, you know what I'm saying? Like I've, I've never met a single one of my clients in person. Okay. And I've never met a single employee in person. My whole business is virtual. So no matter where I am, it doesn't matter. Like my business, my business growth, the trajectory, all that, it does not matter at all where I am physically, right? That, that to me is freedom. Oh my gosh. Like there's really like a couple types of freedoms in this life that like you, you aim for, right? And entrepreneurship is the only thing that's going to give you that financial time and geographical. Financial time, geographical. And there's one, one maybe is energy freedom because time doesn't necessarily equate energy. But those are the three I strive for, financial time and geographical. Geographical, I have. Time, I don't. That's the reason why I'm systemizing, streamlining, all that kind of stuff. And financial, right? That's that, that that's what everyone strives for at the end of the day. If you really look at like why human beings do what they do, there's only two reasons. Number one, impact. Number two, freedom. The second one typically comes first. If you tell me you're impact focused, all that kind of stuff, but you're broke, you're lying. You can't be. Hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You got you to you gotta get free first. Like you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of your family first, right? Till you get to the point where money isn't an object, you don't really desire anything. Yeah. Okay. That impact. Yeah. You can do it simultaneously for sure. But I'm telling you right now, like, like human beings do what they do because of two reasons, freedom and impact on multiple different levels in multiple different industries. Why are you a chef? Well, I'm a chef because I want to make impact. I, want, I, want, I like to see when people smile. When I, when, when I give them, you know, uh, when I cook for them, right? Well, why, why, why are you in real estate? Why well, I want to make money. Why? Uh, I, I want to be free. I want to take care of my family. I want to drive a nice car. I want to live in a nice house. I want to freedom to be able to do that, right? That's literally like, you know, you know how like a lot of like entrepreneurs are like, oh, like these are your reasons. Like, like what are your, what's your why, right? You get that a lot. Like, what's the reason why you do what you do? Brother, the reason why you do what you do is only two things, impact and freedom on multiple different levels. Just define it based off of those two, those two things. That's it. And so entrepreneurship, I think, gives you that for me, right? I don't think I don't, anything else like doesn't even come close. Yeah, doesn't even come close. I love that, man. Um, yeah. So I love the, the passion you talk to uh, talk about with this, uh, such as ideas of freedom and how you define it. Um, I think that that's super important because most people talk about freedom, but don't have a paradigm to like explain what freedom means to them. Um, so, you know, jumping from there to like, what does the future hold for you? 
um, you know, what do, what does that look like next 10 years of your trajectory? Is it building this company to that next stage of growth? Is it building multiple businesses, which you spoke about? And if so, what does that look like? Is it an ecosystem of businesses supporting each other or going after a certain industry or solving a potential problem? Yeah. <clears throat> so now the more, I'm, the more and more that I'm thinking of it right now. So we actually have, a, so we're, we're launching an NFT this year. The NFT essentially is going to be tied to our referral program. How our referral program works is every six clients that you refer to us that hires one full-time employee with us, you get one team member to work in your business for free. We're converting that into an NFT so that you can sell that referral contract to somebody else as a digital asset. Like, for example, imagine if you refer six people from me to me, Ravi, and literally that those six people, right, they all they all start. Okay, you get issued out this NFT. You can go to any business owner and say, hey, pay me 30 grand. And I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an employee to work in your business for the rest of your life. You can choose what skill set that employee has. Social media, web developer, cold caller, whatever you want. They're going to be like, yeah, take my money. What the heck? <sighs> right? Boom. You just converted that referral contract. NFT, I'm moving into that space 100% over the next, this is just in the next year, two years. Um, but we, I, I kind of just like reshifted everything just in the last couple of weeks. Um, but we are going to be the number one um, provider for real estate administrative assistance for all brokerages here in North America, period. Like, we are going to like we're building systems and processes to support exp agents like all the programs that you use sky slope paragon um lion's desk kv core all the programs that they use all the paperwork that they use we're creating an online university with all the documentation with a mastermind group that supports your assistant the support system that the assistant will have is unparalleled and it will be unparalleled in the industry and so if you're an exp real estate administrative assistant there's nowhere else in the world that you would ever go to to hire an assistant except for with us because we have a customized sales force and so we have a customized workforce that already knows exactly how to help you right so we're going to do that in exp we're going to do that in remax we're going to do that in century 21 and we're going to do that in sutton we're going to do that with every major brokerage here in north america and we're going to grow that over the next five years as we grow that at one point, what I am going to do is I'm going to funnel funds into doing into like a, like a, like a venture fund, because I want to get in forefront at the top and the upcoming technologies, because I feel that technology is evolving at such a fast rate that you have to get up the forefront, not even just because of the money, not because it's like, not, it's just honestly, because like the, 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 the power of technology to impact like the people around us, like, like technology is crazy. If you actually think about it, like, like for example, a refrigerator back in the day, like refrigerator is a piece of technology, but do you know how the refrigerator changed our culture? A lot. Why? Because pre-refrigerator, pre-refrigerator, when refrigerator didn't exist, like every single day, what did you do? Go down to the market, get your food because it's fresh. You have no way of preserving your food. So you go out on the market and what happens when you're at the market? You socialize. People are more open. People, oh, hey, John, like, you know, you want to trade a sheet for my cow? Like, it's like, People are more open, more social. It's like, but the moment the refrigerator came, they now went to the market, what? Once a week, once a month. Or in the case of meat selling, like when I was selling meat, once a year for your meat. And so because of that, like refrigerator changed people. So if a refrigerator can change us at that level, like technology can change like worlds, not even just this world, it can change the next generation, the generation after that, the next generation after that. So for me, I, I, I want to be at the forefront of playing in that space. So yes, venture capitalists, and that's, that's probably 10 years down the road. But for the next five years, no, like literally no to the grindstone, just like work, just, just grow this business, move into this space, 
carve out my 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 air, little area in real estate. Like if we got one percent of EXP agents, right? We are we would be a three point five million. So we would be a six to seven million dollar business, three point five million dollar just in profit. Hmm. We just do one percent of EXP. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I love that trajectory, first of all, and especially your um, your really outlook on technology and how it ma- like technology makes us human. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one infraction on what you talked about with the fridge. I mean, fire was a technology. Fire changed us physically. We can no longer consume raw meat, right? It has yeah. physiologically changed us. So it's our technology that oftentimes makes us human, and That's by right. influencing that kind of rate of change, by uh, impact, by uh, building culture around that cha- kind of change. You can really amass that, and going to the power of technology, yeah, like this is the undue leverage that um, that uh, algorithms can impose now, right, on entire populations. Uh, we're seeing now like smaller and smaller clusters of individuals who have you know have millions of people to impact based on the technology you do and 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 and, and see. Um, I want to I want to see see what kind of world do you envision coming forward, right? Do you see a world where a very few elite individuals who have ca- the capital and intellectual resources to build technology and own the te- underlying technology is our kings, and everyone else is like users underneath this? You know, built up under that um, infrastructure of a few key owners. Like, you know, like the people who actually own like a social platform like Instagram. You know, billions of people use it, but only like a like relatively a handful of people own and operate the, uh, the technology. It, it, it benefits them in terms of cap, in terms of uh, in terms of value, right? So, mm-hmm. does technology become ultimately uh, an increase of income inequality, uh, and inequality and inequality and leverage between the haves and have-nots, or it becomes more equal distributed, where more people can do more things, therefore um, they can le- they have access to more leverage. Yeah, I think I think this. Um, the world's going to move towards this. Okay, um, I think over the last hundred years, right? It went from a lot of micro entrepreneurs, right? Like micro entrepreneurs. When I say micro, I mean like small mom and pop shops. Like literally, like you, like we're all entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs. Then, then with tech, certain companies rose to the top, and they started engulfing these companies. And converting a lot of these companies, people who own these companies, farmers, blah, 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 into workers. So it became like major companies and then employees all around. I think the next stage of our economic growth is going to be, it's going to, it's still going to be these major companies. They're going to, they're going to continue to merge, continue to merge. We're going to have these major companies, but what's going to happen is that it's not going to be the, the, the employee the employee sector is going to be replaced by technology and automation and robots, like not to get super like dystopian here, but then the remainder of the population, we're going to revert back to micro entrepreneurship. Meaning that, so for example, think about it, like Instagram, you can start many, many different types of businesses just using that platform alone, right? TikTok. I know a company that you pay them $2,000, they'll come to your house, they'll shoot 60 TikToks for you, edit, post, like that's a company. That's micro entrepreneurship. You're not working for TikTok, but you created a micro company, like similar to the mom and pop shops like 100 years ago, and it's going to move towards that. So it's going to be major companies, and then the the population are going to leverage these major companies to create their own micro entrepreneurships, like micro, micro businesses that are within that. 
I think it's going to move towards that. And in the, the employees of a company is going to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And because it's going to dwindle more, they're going to get paid more. But then the remainder of menial tasks is going to be outsourced or it's going to be um, replaced by machines. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I love that. It's not so utopian or dystopian. Uh, it's kind of like a blend yeah, of both. Reality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man, Sam, this has been great. Um, I, I loved, I love where this conversation kind of took us. Um, I think you had a really interesting background and, uh, you know, kudos again on the success you had at BT member. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, um, you're going to compound on that, but I'm also looking forward to like, what else you build, right? This, um, this, this path you kind of outlined for me, it just seems so appealing. Uh, and it seemed like such a natural great curve for you, right? Ultimately going from building to seeding other new companies and businesses, um, can we end off with either a prediction or maybe one from you? What is some cool piece of technology you wish you can either build now or you can fund someone building? Yeah, I, I when I first started VT member, I was like, man, if I had the money, I'd build a sales app, but like Uber, Uber, mm. but for sales. It's like, imagine if like you had an app and you go on there, you could just hire a cold caller directly on the app. You can see all their stats. You can listen to every single call that they made. You can see how many sales modules in terms of training they went, they went through. You can see every stat at how much revenue they produced for you. Everything all in there directly on the app. You just like hire an employee and then boom, like everything in the back end, service and tech merge into one, one platform. And then you can literally hire a person and just manage your person. Oh, I need to hire another person. Cause this person, like this person is really good. Right. Okay. Beep, and then boom, you hire another person, right? And then uh, and then you can manage the whole process. You can communicate with them, right? You can create your own like team chats. Oh, I got a sale today, blah, 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 all in there. You know, and 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 like that's like a sales app for Uber. I feel like that would be sick. <laughs> like, like somebody can, if down the line, if nobody builds this, like until I, I have the capital to build it, I'm going to build it because <laughs> I think that's freaking amazing. It's just, yeah, hard to manage, but like, yeah, like people can apply to be cold callers, right? So then they can go and get jobs directly with people who aren't cold calling. But I think I think belly to belly cold calling, it works. It works. Like people think it doesn't work anymore, but I'm telling you right now, I think, I think this is, here's another prediction. I think it's actually going to revert back to that because people are so inundated with messages online, like, like this, that, and the other thing. And just like, it's, there's so much like shit happening, like on social media, like, like they feel isolated because they don't, and especially with COVID, right? Like I noticed when I went door to door after, not even after COVID because COVID's still happening, but when I went door to door after like the whole lockdowns and everything was over and I went to the door, people weren't like, oh, get the heck off my property. There's COVID. They're like, oh my gosh, the real human. Can I talk to you? And that's why I think cold calling, like we're going to revert back to at least a stage where cold calling will work better than you actually expected it to. I love that. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with like how people are being isolated, and I love that. And we, me and you, got to connect off channel. I also love that idea of an app for for sales. Thought about how that would work. It's one of the most challenging things because sales is so ambiguous, right? There's so many components to that, and yet it is a huge problem. So absolutely, uh, Sam. So much. For, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you, you know, this has been a really interesting conversation. For sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Take care.